up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Catherine Hicks, and directed by Leonard Nimoy. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And Arnie saying, double dumbass on you. (laughs) Well... The Voyage Home. So, we're at number four, many people's favorite Trek movie. The highest grossing of all the Trek movies. That is true, for the time being. Brock, before we get into the movie itself, I want to talk a little bit about the opening where we have a dedication to the Challenger astronauts. The movie is dedicated to the astronauts who died in the Challenger explosion of January of 1986. The Challenger astronauts had been on everyone's mind for a long time, but I had not thought about, personally, thought about the Challenger astronauts for years. And to start off the movie with that, well, was sobering. Maybe I'm evil, but I actually <laughs> found it just kind of inappropriate. Like, if you're going to eulogize something, perhaps it shouldn't be a slapstick comedy. It had me uh, not only remembering the Challenger, but Krista McAuliffe jokes, which I'm not going to tell any of right now. I can see, Stuart, where you're coming from about the basically comedy movie eulogizing the astronauts. A tragedy. Uh, Yeah, a national tragedy. It seems like too bad it couldn't have been uh, the last one. But I think the thing is that Star Trek was such an inspiration for that generation of NASA scientists and astronauts because those people grew up with Star Trek on the TV. They idolized Star Trek and tried to make it a reality. And I think that given that this is the only Star Trek venue available to them, there was no TV series at this time, I think it was very appropriate for the Star Trek franchise to acknowledge the real world brethren that are continuing to truly explore the final frontier. That said, this was the movie that was there. (laughs) Yeah, I understand why you would do it and why you wouldn't do it, and I suppose the reasons for doing it outweigh the very inappropriate jokes that I made, but it did seem a little off. It set us off for a, a voyage that ends up being much more smiles than tears. Yes, yes. So, Arnie, I think the best place to start would be plot summary. When we last left our crew, they were on planet Vulcan and Spock was resurrected, though he'd lost a few marbles on the trip. (laughs) They're still there. However, in flashbacks from V'ger, a strange probe is going towards Earth and knocking out all power along the way. It's a slightly more pacifistic V'ger. It only takes away your power rather than killing you outright. It happens to arrive at the same time that Kirk and company, who ditch Savick on Vulcan and head home to face the music for Grand Theft Starship. (laughs) And when they get there, Spock realizes that this probe is singing Whale Song and Whale Waiting for a humpback whale to respond. As humpback whales are extinct, they decide the most logical thing to do is travel through time <laughs> to 1986 and perform Grand Theft Humpback Whale. While in 1986, 
Hilarity ensues. <laughs> Chekhov cracks his skull on a nuclear vessel. <laughs> Kirk romances the chick from Child's Play, and they get the whales, travel forward in time again, deposit the whales in the ocean, and because they've saved Earth, they are all pardoned for their crimes against starships everywhere, except for Kirk, who is demoted back to captain and given command of the starship enterprise NCC-1701A, which just happens to look identical to the 1701 other than the A. All right, that's it in the nutshell. So I don't know about you two, but the credit sequence to me was extremely boring. I felt like I was watching a TV movie. I really was unhappy with how this movie started off in earnest. Well, the music struck me. This is the first time I felt like the score was not particularly good. <laughs> uh, I loved the themes of the last two movies and, and the original movie as well. But this was done by someone I'd never heard of before, Leonard Roseman. And I feel like he was inspired by the holiday seasons. It, it really felt like it should have come out of a Christmas movie there's a lot of handbells and chimes and it really just felt like jingle bells done with an orchestra now i do realize that this is indeed the song we use to open every episode of now playing star trek retrospective (laughs) and when i when i played that for one of our producers here they did go is that a christmas carol (laughs) but (laughs) i have to say that the reason i picked it knowing that fans including stewart don't necessarily think it's the best score it certainly is jolly isn't it? It's kind of an upbeat <laughs> tune that sets the tone for the movie. It's da 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 da. You know, it's really happy. Mm-hmm. And it makes you happy to be there. Yeah, if I were in the mall, like riding an escalator, I would feel totally in sync with it. <laughs> so going on from there, for me, the first part of the movie when they are in Epcot Center, I'm sorry, Starfleet, whatever they are, <laughs> I felt really, really cheap, cheesy, confined, low budget. I, I really had trouble with the we're at Starfleet scenes in the beginning of this movie. I felt from the credit sequence on until we get to Kirk and company, I'm like, what is going on? Is this a TV version of Star Trek that they put in the theaters? Was this meant to be on you know, NBC on Sunday night? I really felt like it was just bleh. Well, let me tell you something that I never really realized until doing some research for this series. Growing up, being a Star Trek fan, I thought Star Trek was a huge blockbuster series. I didn't realize only one of them grossed over $100 million and then it barely broke $100 million. I didn't realize that these were movies made where they never had the intent of making the next one. Each one was made with the thought of, this is probably the end. And then it was simply a question of whether or not the last one was profitable if they went back to do the next one. So given what I know now, they didn't have the budget of the blockbuster movies. These weren't intended to be blockbuster movies. Much like the last series of films we did, Friday the 13th, these were done on a very low budget because expectations were low. These were not going to be Back to the Future or Ghostbusters or Star Wars. These were going to be Trek films that would perform modestly around 70 million. I think when you're in the science fiction universe, you really think of Star Wars and Star Trek being on the same level. But uh, as far as profitability and gross and, and even to a certain extent marketing, they aren't really comparable. Okay, even if that's all true, why have the people wear Smurf hats? Why <laughs> why have it be a stage play with the actors? Why have no edits and have people walk and talk? I'm watching a whole, everyone walk towards the camera, walk across the camera, walk to somebody else as they're talking. What is going on? Even if it's, all of that is true, there's a way to do low budget without it making me the audience think holy cow this is really low budget inexperienced directing yeah it's your film yeah. 
Yeah, but look at the last one. And, and you got to realize they're saving a lot of money by putting most of this movie in the present day. They oh, yeah. didn't really have a lot of money to throw at uh, all the other sets. Why throw a lot of money at the other sets? Because we're really only uh, in the future for, what, 25 minutes? Mm, yeah. yeah, about 25 minutes at the beginning and, what, 15 at the end. And I think none of us will argue that this movie takes off like lightning once they get to 1986. Well, yeah, when they're in the 23rd century, I'm just going to say it. This movie sucks. Okay, thank you for saying it because I was – find a way a nice way to say it (laughs) i'm I'm watching the beginning and i want to preface this i have not seen this movie in close to 20 years but i remembered loving this movie i'd seen it so often i could sing you the punk song today and i sat down you know just anticipating this movie and i'm like oh my god everything they do in the 23rd century is so much we don't want to be in the 23rd century the (laughs) The way they're just like, we're going to travel through time. They don't even try anything else. <laughs> I think traveling through time might be option B. <laughs> I think when your best option is to travel in time to fix something, you might as well hang it up because that's... Uh... Have they ever done that before? Has this series ever done that? Let's go into the sun real fast and maybe we'll get back in time before. I mean, like, they're doing something that, like, I would think had never been attempted before, and they're acting like, well, this is probably how the best way to get the whales. <laughs> they did say that they did it before, didn't they, Arnie? Yes. It started in a 1966 episode called Tomorrow is Yesterday. They are being pulled into the sun to save themselves. They pull themselves out of the sun doing a slingshot maneuver and are very shocked to find themselves traveling through time. So that was how it was introduced, and then to get back into their own time, they have to try to recreate it. You know, a lot of the old episodes took place because of mishaps. Oops, the transporter didn't work. Now there's two Kirks. You know, so much didn't mean to happen in that first series, including time travel. Mm. However, much later, they then got lazy about it, and one episode actually opened in the 60s, and Captain's Log, we've reperformed the slingshot maneuver and are in the 60s. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, there was other time travel that took place. There was a big stone circle that you could jump through and jump into the past. I mean, they, they had definitely played with time travel before. I think, though, if we can go off on a hair of a tangent, this opens such a bad door. If you enable them to fix everything through time travel, why is it used so rarely? I hate this conceit. I have always hated this conceit since I was a little child and watched Superman the movie in theaters and Superman spun the Earth backwards and turned back time and saved Lois Lane's life. I hate time travel cop-outs. I don't dislike time travel, Back to the Future, and a few others, but when it's just like a plot device to fix something that you wrote poorly, I hate it. Yeah, and you have to also question at the end of the movie, why would they jump back to the exact moment in time where the probe's about to destroy the Earth? Why wouldn't they jump back ahead of time to when before they stole the, the Enterprise, before no, everyone even knows they stole the Enterprise, have the whale song ready with the whales, plop them in there, avoid the whole thing completely, and they can, you know, spick and span, no problems there. They arrive exactly at the right point. So that's when I also start questioning the time travel conceit, because if they bring this into play, then why not be clever about it, you know? So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why they would possibly want to face the music of stealing the Enterprise and all those problems if they have the power of time travel to actually pinpoint exactly the moment in time with a slingshot maneuver, mind you, how to get to exactly where they want to be. To, to why they get to 1986 is well explained because of the materials they need to carry the whales back and forth for fuel reasons and because humpback whales still exist. 1986 fit all the parameters. They, they go into great lengths to explain that. Why? 
why don't they arrive back before Star Trek Three even happened? I would love it if they would make a mistake and go back in time and accidentally give V'ger some whales. <laughs> <laughs> when they're traveling back in time, what in the hell was with that psychedelic LSD, heads in the cloud, man in the water sequence? <laughs> I loved that scene as a kid, and uh, now it kind of reminds me of those. Do you guys remember they had these made for for VHS computer graphics movies called In the Mind's Eye? And it was like you could find them like playing in dance clubs or just like – I don't know what they were good for. But it was just lots of trippy computer-generated images set to like uh, minimalist techno. No. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I guess I'm exposing myself. Well, I watched this stuff, and it it took me back to that. It was right when the advancement of computer technology was allowing them to almost convincingly facsimile the human face. And so you would always have these kind of bald people in uh, Tron-like worlds, yeah, falling and dancing and what have you. It took me back to that. It was clearly a, hey, we're going to throw this in because we can do it, not because there's anything really motivating us to do it. Yeah, that's exactly what I felt the entire time of that sequence is look at the cool stuff we can do. And, you know, I almost thought it would be better to have one of them go, we're tra- 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 traveling to the f- 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 future. <laughs> it was yeah. exactly that time period, you know. It would have yeah. been really something better than that. That's exactly what I'm saying. We were enamored with anything that c- – computers were replicating the look of a human being and Max Hedrum and all of this. It was really cool to watch, you know, Ohura and Chekhov and all pop out of a milky cloud for for, for whatever that was. <laughs> well, you know, I think they should have not done that scene and instead taken that money because that had to be pricey in the 80s. Mm. Nowadays, they could probably do it for 50 bucks on Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> but in the 80s, that had to be a pretty penny because the effects of the whale probe destroying Earth looked so cheap. Like when it's making the ocean explode upwards or something, that, that looked as cheap as anything I'd seen. And then they spend... Like a good minute or more with these heads in the clouds and then this weird symbolic imagery of, I I think, a naked man or a man in a jumpsuit falling into water. And I don't know. I mean, Nimoy is now a photographer who takes naked photos of fat women. So maybe there's some meaning to all of this that I just don't get. I'm not an artiste, but (laughs) it was definitely a high art moment. It was Nimoy saying, I am going to do something very, very cool and pretentious and you know, I, I kind of love it for its silliness. It, like I said, it just reminds me of, of when I thought this kind of effect was mind-blowing. That's just incredible that they could do that. And it's just sort of – it's like playing Pac-Man. You go back and you play it and you're just like, I remember when this was – as good as it got. I was reading or talking to an author at one point, and I wish I could cite the source, but they said that time travel without paradox is pointless. And I agree with that. If you're going to have a time travel story, have a time travel story. And when the Enterprise first went back in time, they altered history by an astronaut test pilot saw the Enterprise and they had to fix it because now it was going to change all of history and the history they would return to wouldn't be their own. Here, there is no paradox other than a couple of gags. This is just Again, it's entirely a setup. It's as big as a cop-out as Proto Matter was in Trek 3. It's, we just want a story with them in the 80s, so let's come up with some BS. You got it, <laughs> yes. the Everything about this feels like an artificial excuse to get us to see uh, a fish-out-of-water comedy. Literally and figuratively. 
Yeah, and I believe this is the same year that ALF premiered, and it's the same kind of jokes. Um, you know, Americans love the Mork and Mindy, the ALF, the Third Rock from the Sun, those kind of aliens who are arriving on modern-day Earth and, you know, the things they don't understand. Well, basically, they have aliens, and obviously human beings, but aliens to this time, and they had the same kind of jokes. I, d- I would disagree that it's the same kind of jokes. I think that there were only a couple of those, what do we do on Earth, what is money jokes. There were a couple in the beginning. The mouse, th- the computer mouse. Okay, that's two. I think that the humor was all self-referential. The joke wasn't what is money, although there were a couple of those, and Hello Computer. The, and Hello Computer, I would say, is a different level because Star Trek people are so used to talking to computers. The jokes were always, let's mock our principles that Star Trek has done for 20 years now. Let's make fun of ourselves. Oh, and right. I think that's different than Alf going, let's make fun of you people, the humans with your money and your television. This is, let's make fun of us. Okay. There is some self-parody, and I do agree. But there's also a very, very heavy hand used finger-pointing at modern audiences for endorsing whaling. I mean, there are large chunks of the movie in which Spock or the female protagonist tells us how awful it is that mankind is, you know, killing sea life. Which is another Trek uh, tentpole. It would have been so wonderful if they'd done kind of like the Phoebe Cates and Gremlins 2 thing, where they were telling us that and making fun of the fact that Trek is constantly moralizing to its audience. Right. Yes, I agree. More self-referential humor in that part of the story would have probably made it a little bit more enjoyable. Mm, interesting. Yeah, The thing that this really directly reminded me of, and it might have come out the same year, it was certainly within the same year and put out by Paramount, is Crocodile Dundee. And the humor of that movie is the same as Star Trek 4. It's the idea that we will transplant these innocents into an urban environment and watch them struggle to uh, figure it out. Yeah, I hear that. The first time I saw this movie was because my mother came back from the video store saying, I heard this movie was great and really fun. We should all watch it. My mom picked up a Star Trek film for the family film for Friday night. That blew my mind. I thought, my mom is so cool. And we watched this movie, and she's sitting there howling at this movie, loving the stuff that, you know, is that a lot of money? Or I'm not sure exactly what gags, what is exact change, which I thought was a clever gag. I thought that was funny and Mm -hmm. completely unexpected. She was loving it. So perhaps the older set thought it was laugh out loud, guffaw funny. I enjoyed the movie. I certainly did uh, when I was, you know, what, 12, 13 years old. But she loved it and still thinks, oh, is that the one with the whales? I like that one. So maybe we're missing something because the humor was over our heads or older than us, maybe. Because I love that exact change joke. I love the joke like, oh, you're going to tell me that money isn't in the future. He's like, but it's not. It was a really – that's a really funny take and they they cut away really quick from it. So there are a couple of really fun gags in this movie that I'm not saying I'm like – knee-slapping funny, but I, I went <laughs> when I was watching it this time. It but. is chuckle-inducing, but it for me, this movie flirts dangerously close to being too much. You know, yeah. I think the key, the, the, the secret of what they were after is in the name of the whales, George and Gracie. And 
it's like, oh, this is who you're aiming for. People that liked George Burns. Okay. Well, you know, this cast is a little up there, and it is kind of senior citizen humor. But I don't know. There were definitely some things that I did enjoy seeing, much more so than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I thought this was the stupid one. Now I can kind of <laughs> smile at some of it. I kind of like the exchange early on that happens. McCoy goes to talk to Spock about what it was like to die. It's uh, It had some clever interplay there. I thought maybe it was one of McCoy's best moments ever, really. Yeah, I think that the characters were spot on in this. And when we were talking about part three, I said that that felt like an ensemble piece and everybody had their thing to do. Here, I think the same thing happened again. Sulu a little less than the others, but everybody had their moment to shine. And I think that they'd been finally working together for so long, the interplay was effortless on the actors' parts. Yes, and I do want to credit Nimoy with something. It would have been very easy to make a movie where you're mocking these characters And I think probably because he was one of the characters, it's a little more loving. Like, I never felt like the joke was on Kirk or Ahura or Chekhov, that there was sort of a winking to the audience and that it it honored the series as opposed to entered self-parody. Yep. Agreed completely. It is very much for the fans rather than making fun of the fans a la Galaxy Quest. Right. Right. Now, I have a couple of questions, though, technical stuff about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. And I realize we're talking about the time travel one. Okay. Even though they showed the visual on the screen in Star Trek three, I think, of the cloaked bird of prey. I'm under the impression that a cloaked vehicle is blind to radar, not literally invisible. That It's literally invisible. Otherwise, a window would be your undoing. Right. So I loved in this movie how the invisible ship had like three or four gags that really I thought were, were fun and, and clever and they made it work. But it occurred to me that, wow, it's literally invisible. And it reminded me of uh, the invisible plane from Wonder Woman show. Remember yeah, but that actually, one? Yeah, but you actually saw Wonder Woman sitting in it, didn't you? On the <laughs> that was the weirdest <laughs> part. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a woman in a sitting, squatting position, flying in the air. Okay, we have only seen transporters transport you down from the transporter, either into another transporter bay or down to a planet, and then you can get transplanted when you have your coordinates from a planet into the transporter bay. Yet, the whales are transported into the ship, into the tank. Never, not to the actual transporter bay. That is done quite regularly on Star Trek, but infrequently. They do it a lot in The Next Generation, I know, where they'll be like, transport us directly to sick bay. And it's like a double hop, I suppose, you know. But somehow they go from point A to point C without ever stopping in point B. So they have done it other times in Trek. Had they done it other times at the release of this movie? I don't. Okay. I just, I don't, I'm I'm not trying to be a nitpicker, but I'm noticing that. The movie makes me notice it, you know? So if I noticed it, I'm thinking something's wrong. You know what I mean? Like maybe the movie is not connecting with me as much as it should. So therefore I'm thinking about, wait a minute, how can that happen? But flew into the sun to go to (laughs) 1986 and you're worried about the whales. Yeah, well, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. We're talking about a story about people from the future, okay, in a spaceship in space. I'm willing to give a movie all the conceits in the world anytime, no problems. You have a sandbox you're playing in, you set me up with a sandbox, I will play in your sandbox, not a problem, you set up your rules, you go. But when you start breaking rules is when I start thinking, what? And as long as you explain it properly, I don't got a problem with that. 
But to me, when I see transporters in these movies, they transport down to someplace and they transport back up. Every time they transport back up, they transport on the transporter bay. That's the only reason I'm being nitpicky about it. They set up the rules, dude. I'm following the rules they're setting up. And That's all I'm saying. You know what? Trek is horrible at explaining certain things, and I believe this to be the case with almost all science fiction. You start peeling back the layers of the onion too far, and you find something rotten. Why don't they always fly warp 9? Why Why ever warp 3? Unless they just are going to be someplace too early for a meeting. <laughs> why do they transport to the transporter room ever if they can transport straight to the bridge from the planet? I don't know. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's fair it's enough. just one of those Trek things that when I was a big Trekkie, I wondered, why not always go Warp 9? You could see so much more of the final frontier if you went faster. <laughs> Maybe there's speed limits in space. Interlo- intergalactic cops <laughs> hiding behind intergalactic billboards. I- I'm sure somebody somewhere has gone like fuel efficiency or some BS, but... <laughs> You don't want to tax the dilithium crystals because the next dilithium crystal station is, you know, the next galaxy over or something. I don't know. Now, I, I got one for early on, and it's uh, Arnie. I had a question uh, just when the setup of the movie, um, w- when we're on Vulcan and Spock is – Uh, capable of remembering all sorts of facts and details, but he is having trouble connecting with his emotions and they bring up the fact that he's half human, which I always forget, that he's half Vulcan, half human, and his mother comes out? Is that a human mother that comes out to speak with him? Yes, that is a human mother, and it is his Vulcan father who's pleading the case on Earth. Yeah, why is the, who, what's the story with this human mother? Why she's hanging out on Vulcan? She married a Vulcan. It's again, something from the original series were introduced to Spock's parents and I believe Sarek was a diplomat and a human woman fell in love with him and you know he has no emotion so it's not necessarily love but it's logical to marry her and so they did. Okay hmm. I was I was wondering how those two got together. I, I found myself very curious about how someone so uh, logic based could could have the emotions for someone outside his species and if that would in fact be logical to have a kid interplanetary. Yep. What's interesting is Savick is supposedly half Vulcan and half Romulan. Now, this was never actually included in the final cuts of Star Trek II, but it was in the script and in the novel. Boy, did they get rid of her quick in this one. What? I mean, I felt like I was watching The Apprentice here. It was like, you're fired. <laughs> like, she shows up literally enough to say, you know, Kirk, I just wanted to let you know that your son died honorably. And he looks at her like, boy, I wish it was you. <laughs> well, <laughs> so do we. <laughs> She got more than Carol Marcus. At least she got her cameo in this one. <laughs> they put her in there for the fans like, what happened to Savick? And as far as the actress goes, she gets a paycheck. She ain't complaining. According to the director's commentary, it had initially been put there so that you could wonder if she was staying on Vulcan to have Spock's baby because of the pon far bounce to bounce bow on Genesis. Oh, wow. Hmm. I, was, uh, I didn't even occur to me. It was it, it was something that was in the early scripts. It was overt, and then it was implied, and then it was gone, but Savick still says her goodbyes. I see. Well, it serves another purpose, too, and that is the Savick character has never been a source of comedy, and we haven't spent much time with her uh, relative to all the other cast, so it would be very awkward to have this slapsticky adventure with someone with no sense of play. And no real history. So I feel like she got traded out and Catherine Hicks got brought in because 
uh, she's more of that warm, funny vibe. And I made a joke when we did Star Trek Two that uh, Shelley Long could never exist in the Star Trek universe. But I felt like if it, if she ever could, she'd be playing this Catherine Hicks character. It's the same kind of Shelley Long part. This uh, crazy environmentalist who cares more about her whales than the aquarium making any money, and is just you know lecturing anybody that comes into the hall about how horrible mankind is to the sea life. Well, first of all, in response to that, what museum do you go to to see the whales where they show you the whales being gutted? <laughs> That's yeah. one hell of an aquarium. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I've always found it weird, though, that there usually is a seafood restaurant attached to an aquarium. So maybe this is a little more socially conscious. It is San Francisco after a while. There is a definite more microbiotic than thou quality to that town. And I love San Francisco, but you know it's true, San Francisco. Why not? not show her the spaceship why did kirk not want to show her the spaceship the whole thing is and the slight way they deal with paradox they can't change the past at all if kirk knew what scotty was doing with transparent aluminum scotty would be in for some trouble mm -hmm. because they can't change the past if they were to show her the ship and she were to remain in the past perhaps something she would see on the ship could change the future because she would invent something or do something with it. okay so that's not really clear and no it, it's 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 a big of a cop-out as anything else because the moment he says we're from the future you right. might as well just take her to the ship in my, my opinion point exactly. yeah, you gotta prove it i mean otherwise you just look like a nut you're a He's crazy man walking around with a guy in a bathrobe <laughs> I don't know. I just got a creepy old man vibe. When I was watching that very last scene, it was like, as you say in your century, I don't even have your telephone number. And she's like, yep, you don't. I gotta go. <laughs> I mean, it was really <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, I feel like they had good chemistry, actually. I would make the argument I kind of liked Kirk here more than I have in any other movie, at least as a uh, as a likable presence. You know, he yeah. had... He had some grit in, in part two, and I enjoyed him taking on Khan. But uh, Catherine Hicks really brings out the uh, the uh, humor, which I think comes in later when we see Shatner now on Boston Legal or something like that. Um, the self-parroting uh, uh, side of Shatner. She was the, probably the first one I've seen to actually bring it out of him. I thought they were good together. But I also don't think she could have stayed on for, for future adventures. I think it was wise to get her out of there. Yep. She served her purpose. Now, again, in a little bit more behind-the-scenes knowledge, I want to picture an alternate universe where Catherine Hicks of Seventh Heaven fame, you know, we have two Seventh Heaven stars now yep. in the Star Trek series. But if Catherine Hicks wasn't in this movie, and instead you have Eddie Murphy, because that role was initially written for Eddie Murphy. Wow. <laughs> He that was in like Richard Pryor and, and Superman 3. Yes. How long would that have been? <laughs> the thought was Eddie Murphy had just had Beverly Hills Cop, which and he was under Paramount contract. And he said he was a Star Trek fan and wanted to be in a Star Trek movie. And so they decide to put him into this movie. And when they travel back through time, they find this whale guy who's also a UFO nut. And so he's the one interacting with the Star Trek crews. So he'll be like, you from the future! You know, <laughs> that's my Eddie Murphy, everybody. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, it sounds like a Chris Rock, but that's... It, they're both good. Yeah. That certainly would have made the uh, pizzeria uh, uh, dinner date scene a little bit more, uh, I don't know, San Francisco. <laughs> but yes. what happened was they gave him the script. He's like, I don't want to do that. I wanted to be a Starfleet officer, not a crazy UFO guy. And he went off to make Golden Child. Mm. Mm. Okay. 
Uh, well, but- Eddie Murphy didn't make the movie, but I do want to say there was a ripoff Axel F theme when they first oh. appear on the uh, downtown. Was there ever? But oh, did yes, every was. movie have that? Fletch and Golden Child itself, they all had that little funky as funky as synthesizers gotten that day. It was it was weird because as a kid, I lived in the Midwest. I didn't know what a major city was. I thought every city was like uh, how they depicted New York City. So it was really weird looking at this now and being like they're in downtown San Francisco, which is only like a couple blocks, and like the cab drivers are like, get out of my way! And I, I'm like, this is more like a New York parody. They're, people in San Francisco would all be re- riding bicycles. I just, I didn't <laughs> buy that scene at all. I wish it had been cut, but I guess it, it was their big comedy moment. Can we talk about the nuclear vessels, please? <laughs> please. I loved that scene then, and now I don't think the joke hits home. But you've got a Russian yeah. going around asking for the nuclear vessels. That was great. I love that part. I thought I had forgotten about it, actually. And that was a, a brilliant bit, I thought. I also liked being interrogated on the ship, and they're like, inter- in, you know, interrogating a Russian who thinks he's from space. You know, it's really a lot of fun, layer upon layer. And then when he runs away, talk about the light and frothy music. The music there really worked. It had that kind of Russian theme to it, like Tetris, you know? And it really was kind of fun. That whole sequence, they played it up really, really well. Very strong part of the movie. Yeah, I I think that that was good. I think Uhura needed a little bit more to do, but I thought Koenig really played those scenes well. And I also really liked the scene where they're rescuing him from the hospital and like McCoy is commenting on medicine and he gave me a new kidney. You know, I love that stuff. It was in danger for me of almost being too much. I was like, oh boy, we're really broad. You know, I don't see a whole lot of big broad comedies and I really had to just go with it. You know, it is funny if you're in the right frame of mind. I couldn't watch Star Trek if every movie was pitched to this octave, but for one little toss-off kind of lark, I'll go with it. Arnie, my mother wailed in laughter, no pun intended to this movie, <laughs> in in the hospital scenes. She loved it. What is this, the Dark Ages? <laughs> she loved it. So there you go again. It's the, I thought that scene played pretty well. I hear exactly what you're saying, Stuart. I thought it was a little too much there, too, if this, this time I watched it. But I, I do enjoy that scene. It's it's silly fun. Yeah, yeah. you got to do it. You're in the 20th century. Bones having a commentary on on what was cutting edge medicine. You got to do it. Now the characters of this movie obviously are poking fun at themselves, but I don't. I almost think that this one kind of stabbed the last two movies in the back because you know the last two movies. Yeah, we needed to lighten up, but we had Kirk and Spock as these deep friends in two. Kirk sacrifices everything to save him in three, and here they're going to bond by teaching Spock to curse. And Kirk decides, oh, I just don't need these glasses anymore. I'll sell them for a hundred bucks. It's like every bit of development that had happened to these characters is undone and we're back to square zero. It is interesting to me that they even chose to do this kind of storyline to right where they were. Because I, you know, seeing this as coming from episodic television, could have accepted 
Bam! First scene. We're on a new Enterprise with Kirk piloting it, and he turns to Spock and says, boy, they, this stinks that they demoted me, and now I have to be this. Like, I didn't need it to be so interconnected with the last two movies, but these, these three, two, three, and four really are one story. And what's weird about it is, I think what you're picking up on, Arnie, is that the fabric of this last movie is so much different than the other ones. It doesn't have the same feel. I never, for the life of me, for all these years, thought of Star Trek Four as part of the same story as Star Trek Two and Three. Now, clearly, it's connected in the beginning, but it's such a different movie than Two and Three that I never thought of it as a trilogy at all. You say you never thought of it as a trilogy, but now, watching these movies again with fresh eyes, can't you see it? Really, you could see this entire trilogy as Kirk and Spock, the friendship evolving in two you establish the strong friendship in three you see the return of Spock and four is the healing of Spock so when it ends it's back where it begins you know it's almost like instead of a character arc it's a character circle because when this part four ends everything is right back to where it was back when Star Trek one ended they're all on the ship in familiar roles just like nothing happened in two three and four mm-hmm. it's except, true except that Kirk is captain again that's it you're yeah, I, I, right. I agree and if you look at every single other movie in the Trek series, they all stand 100% alone with zero ties to any other movie. Mm. Much like one had nothing to do with two, five has nothing to do with four, six nothing to do with five, and so on ad infinitum. Mm -hmm. I didn't need for this movie to be tied in. I wasn't sitting there after three thinking, how are they going to get their besmirched name back? How are they going to get their reputation back? That it was sort of built on that idea was unnecessary for me. And that this one really doesn't have the same feeling as the other two movies in this so-called trilogy, I think makes it awkward. That Mm -hmm. said, I still had a good time. I still enjoyed the movie, and I still feel like it probably was the wise thing to do, to hit the reset button, lovingly look back on everything about this series from a a standpoint of humor and loving self-parody, and then be ready to go into a new adventure Uh, Whatever that may be. I completely agree. The movie works. Did you guys get a little cocoon off of this? <laughs> that was one thing I kept thinking about. It's like the mixture of deep sea diving and senior citizens. I just kept thinking, this feels a little cocoon to me. If, if uh, Nimoy had gone into a breakdancing club, I would have really called it out. Never thought of it once. Me neither. Mm. But do you see it now? I mean, I always feel like Trek is its own thing, obviously, but it does borrow from the science fiction of whatever is kind of popular. If the first movie was heavily influenced by 2001 and, and Star Wars, obviously, uh, and then you saw Shades of Alien in the second one, this one, I like I said, it really felt like uh, they were seeing the success of uh, the Ron Howard film and felt we can do a lighthearted senior citizen aquatic extraterrestrial comedy if they can. Well, wait a minute. Back to the Future came out the year before, so they probably also want to jump on that bandwagon if they're jumping on bandwagons at all. Cocoon and Back to the Future both came out in 85. That's true. No, you're right to call Back to the Future. I think you're right. I think they were chasing the tales of those series or those movies and did it in their own style. 
I can't say for a fact that there were no influences from it. I don't really see Cocoon, but what I see is a director who gravitates more towards comedy than towards drama. And this is the one where he was really getting to take the reins. He had a little bit more confidence as a director after the success of part three. He was coming back. He was instrumental in writing the story. I mean, this is the guy who brought us three men and a baby. Yep. I'm sure that he was influenced by films at the time the same way any creator is influenced by what they are exposed to. And when you go to write something, the baggage of what you've seen in your lifetime influences your creation. But I I don't know if it was an intentional aping. I, I really don't think that there's enough there to say they were mimicking more than this is just what Nimoy does. And clearly the scenes that we all like the best and the parts of this movie that are strongest are the ones with comedic aspects. And so what you're saying is true. When they're in the 23rd century, it's boring as toast. When they're in 86, the thing shines and and I think that all has to do with the type of movie that's being made at those at that time in the movie. And the movie Nimoy wanted to make. The the areas where Nimoy spent his time and focused his attention. Yep. yep. I much rather and would rather watch yeah, Kirk and Spock on a city bus giving the Vulcan no- nerve pinch to the punk than I would in those action scenes. You know, the, the whole uh, climax of the movie is built around we have to get the whales back before the Finnish uh, whalers harpoon them. And that's just, I mean, that was not necessary. There was nobody... That first of all, why would you release whales out from captivity right into the path of uh, you know whalers? That was really not very intelligent. And then to have the, the the crew have to like literally flying in front of the harpoon as it's being shot to stop it uh, from the whales from being you know, skewered. I just felt like, wow, this man really is much better at comedy than he is with the pulse quickening action scenes. And I really feel like, you know, when you look at the movies he went on to make, you you mentioned Three Men and a Baby, and he didn't go on to make other action movies. He made comedies, and uh, that is the strong suit. I thought it was impressive when uh, we have the scene of them finally getting back to the future. Uh, The Golden Gate, and I guess it's been in all the movies, was the first time that it actually registered with me. The Golden Gate Bridge is still standing in the 23rd century. The one thing that got me with that scene is a Klingon bird of prey is tiny if it can fit underneath a couple of those guardrails of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, the Golden Gate Bridge is big, but remember, the Enterprise holds 800 people. Oh, yeah, those whales were flying coach. I mean, it was tight in there. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about this movie is a little bit of its legacy of what it sets up for the future movies. First of all, I think it does a couple of things, and I cannot believe that they were intentional because, again, it, it seems from the research I've done, every movie they did they thought could very likely be the last. And yet, there's a couple of things dropped in this movie that really come into play, especially two movies later. They've got the Klingons right there wanting Kirk's head, and that's something that never pays off in this movie at all. We've got this whole opening speech from a Klingon that why have the Klingon there other than just exposition? Mm -hmm. I love that scene because they show amazing footage of the Enterprise blowing up. What what camera was there to get that footage of the Enterprise (laughs) blowing up? Was it some sort of like intergalactic? It was the footage clearly from episode three, but who was there to take the footage? I like that they even make fun of that, though, in this movie, because the whales are in Alaska. Shatner says on screen, and the Catherine Hicks character goes, you can do that? (laughs) (laughs) 
I had I was I literally laughed out loud when I saw the footage of the Enterprise blowing up because I was like, who took that? All right, go ahead. I, I agree completely, and I had the same problem in part two. Do they just have security cameras and engineering from all angles? Well, it was beautifully edited. That's what I, I commented on on the podcast. But I believe that more because it's on the ship. You know, that could possibly happen. Deep space cameras out of the blue. Deep space cameras monitoring the stars. What? All right, I'll give it to you. You want to know how they did it? If I were writing the novelization, obviously, when you set a self-destruct, you would want the black box of the starship <laughs> to eject so that the captain's logs are preserved when the wreckage is found. And the black box would obviously have a camera. So they launched the black box to take a video? Yes. Wonderful. Ex- wonderful retcon. That's fantastic. Maybe they jumped into the sun, went back, took a picture of it, and then jumped back through the sun to uh, show us the footage. <laughs> the other thing it sets up, and I, I really like this line in retrospect, is when they're going to see their new ship. And Sulu goes, I'm hoping for the Excelsior. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he- two movies later, he's captain of the Excelsior. They can't have known. I just think that's a great little dropped reference in hindsight. Yes, I agree. I, You know what it is? I'm willing to bet that George Dakai never gave up on it. Everyone else forgot that he said that, but George Dakai says, you know, I could be the captain of the Excelsior. And then like the fifth one, he's like, no, 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 no. You're just going to sit here. And then finally they were like, all right, all right, we'll let you, we'll let you. But I think, it, I think that's all George Dakai. <laughs> and the third legacy this movie set up, Shatner refused to return for this. And first they were going to do a prequel movie because they couldn't get Shatner. And then Shatner agreed to come back only when promised he could direct the next one. So that is the price we pay. <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that one. Uh, we'll get to that very soon. And we're going to talk about that the next time. So, Stuart, Arnie, let's end this one. Do you recommend Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home? Stuart. Have a couple beers first. This is not (laughs) the Star Trek that you really love and want, but it is fun. And I did have a good time when I conceded that they're not going to emphasize the science of this science fiction. This is much more a a gentle reboot. And uh, take it as that, and I think you will have a really good time. Stuart, I have to ask, that beer you're having, is it a Michelob? And when you watch the movie, is it on your Apple Macintosh? Because there were some product placement in this. (laughs) And then I I found the video rental store in the yellow pages. That was a really funny, that was a really funny gag, though, that giant yellow pages billboard. Where can we find that information? That was funny. (laughs) I can't even say it straight faced. I'm sorry. Get on. I too would recommend this movie, but not as strongly as I thought. You know, I think this one, while it hit its broadest audience, I can't see this one being as all encompassing overall. You kind of got to know Trek to get most of the jokes. And also, a lot of the jokes seem somewhat dated as the Cold War is now 20 years behind us. So, uh, kids of the current generation aren't going to understand why a Russian wanting to know where a nuclear vessel is is funny. But I do recommend this movie. I, I, I don't like it as much as two, but it is the second best one we've seen so far. And I believe I'm not going to prejudge all the future ones, but my memory tells me it's the second best of the entire series. And for me, it's a very, 
very weak recommendation. I saw this a few years ago on cable, but I missed the first half hour. I came in when they got to San Francisco. It had a good time watching that sequence. But this time through, watching it from beginning to end, I, I really was amazed how much I was not enjoying myself. And by the time we got to San Francisco and had all the fun parts, I was almost done. So the movie really takes off in that middle section and watch it for that alone, especially if you are watching all the Trek movies. Um, you will get a kick out of that middle section, but it really is a weak, weak movie. And it, we'll see how it goes once we finish the entire series, but um, I'm not sure if I agree with Arnie on the, it's the second best one. That's maybe uh, your, your feeling, Arnie, but I don't know. This one really surprised me this time. I thought I was going to look, I was looking forward to this one so much with the hindsight of, oh, I really liked this one the first time around. And it, it sounds to me like you're not really recommending it. Like you're only recommending it because you used to like it. Well, I like that middle section so much. I thought that the meat of the movie does work for me. So it's a weak, weak recommendation. But as a, it's not a great Star Trek movie, in my opinion. But I think we both agree that neither of us liked it as much as we remember liked. And but I actually liked it more because I didn't like it back when I was watching Trek movies. So maybe it's directly relation relational to how you felt about it back in the day. <laughs> so thank you, Stuart and Arnie, for joining me today. If you enjoyed what you heard, please go to our website, www.nowplayingpodcast.com, and download some of our other shows. Besides Star Trek series, we have the Friday the 13th retrospective series and a whole bunch of reviews on non-series related movies. Please check those out. We also want to hear what you have to say. Please send us an email at show at nowplayingpodcast.com. Let us know what you think about our stuff, or please post in our forums. You can go to our website and connect there and share in the conversation about this movie and other movies that we've discussed on Now Playing. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And we will see you soon for Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Live long and prosper. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life forms and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved.
there was clearly a water tank in the back of some movie lot. It was clearly not the ocean. Really? The end, the end Thank you, Brock. That was enlightening. <laughs> well, and but, they weren't whales. It was just flippers. Big, but, big, big flippers. They could probably try to explain it. Oh, they're standing on the wing. No, they're standing up in the ocean. <laughs> it was a great climax. Yeah. Yes. Jump into the pool. That's an 80s cliche. It's a good time. Everyone into the pool. 